You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. This episode is inspired by a talk that my teacher gave last weekend and centers around the preciousness of human life, a very appropriate topic for what we are currently facing in the COVID-19 crisis. One thing that is evident, strikingly evident, everywhere we all look around right now is that the world is different. Things have changed. In our current generation, particularly anyone born in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we have never experienced a situation, a world crisis on this proportion. The staggering loss of life that is reported each day in the COVID-19 crisis is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. The disruption to what is our understanding of the world is completely unparalleled. Just reading the numbers is overwhelming. It's so hard to understand. The numbers start to be so big worldwide that it's hard to even make sense of it. As of sharing this podcast with you, there are over 2.4 million people infected in the world and nearly 170,000 deaths due to the coronavirus. It's increasing each day exponentially. Viruses, including the COVID-19, tend to spread at an exponential rate, which means they multiply really quickly in such a way so we can't even understand. On March 6th, not too long ago, the world had just 100,000 confirmed cases. One month later, there were one million cases. If the virus continues to grow at this rate, this number could reach 10 million by May. Hearing this is, again, just overwhelming. I listen to these numbers and I feel like, wow, this is really horrible. And at the same time, you know, the human brain has an innate capacity to deal with smaller numbers. And it's this reference point that I want to give to you to help contextualize it, to put this into perspective. So to put it into perspective, the number of people infected is greater than the total population of the state of New Mexico here in the United States. It's getting close to the total population of the states of Kansas and Mississippi here in the United States. The total infected number of people in the world is also getting really close to the total population of the countries of Jamaica, Qatar, and Lithuania independently. I was speaking it over with my husband, Tim, and he pointed out that this number of infected people in the world is half the population of the country of Denmark. This is a staggering amount of people. And when you put it into that proportions, if one of these countries were, you know, the sole place of the infection, their entire population would be infected. It would, it would, it's completely unbelievable. The number of people who've lost their lives outnumbers the total population of Tempe, Arizona, which is a pretty popular city in Arizona near Phoenix. It's getting close to the total population of Huntington Beach, California. 
and it outnumbers the total population in Williamsburg, New York, in Santa Clara, California, in Flint, Michigan, and in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The total number of people who've lost their lives also outnumbers the entire population of the largest city in the nation of Cape Verde. To put it into perspective for Americans, the number of people who've lost their lives due to coronavirus in the entire world is 17 times, 17 times the number of U.S. troops who lost their lives in both, both the Iraq and Afghan wars. That the number of wounded U.S. troops doesn't yet equal the total of people who've lost their lives from the COVID-19 crisis. There are also an average of 175 million people per square mile in New York City during peak periods. I mean, not now. There were before this crisis. If you think about that, 175 million people per square mile in New York City, the COVID-19 up until this point has wiped out one square mile of New York City. For those of you who are familiar with Manhattan, you'll know that that is a staggering amount of people, particularly for New Yorkers or anyone who's lived or spent time in New York, that really puts it into perspective. If one square mile of Manhattan was completely annihilated, completely gone. So these numbers are really important for us to put into a context to make it relatable. Otherwise, they're just alienated numbers floating out in the air. Oh, big numbers, we should feel something. But unless you can put it into relatable terms, that spark of compassion is often harder to find and further away than we would like it to be. So the reason that we practice yoga is to tap into that heart of compassion, to tap into that place where our hearts are able to put into perspective the suffering of others and not just focus on the inconvenience of ourselves so that we can truly be empathetic and be called into action. So we can embody that idea that compassion is empathy plus action. Last weekend, I got the chance to practice with my teacher, Arsharat Joyce, on Zoom. It was really, really a blessing. My husband and I, along with our amazing team of staff and teachers at Miami Life Center, organized the event. There were a thousand people practicing from all over the world, and it was really, really touching to experience this communal joining together of yogis. The practice was followed by a conference where my teacher was speaking about the preciousness of human life. And he shared how he'd been deeply impacted by the staggering loss of life and that he hopes that people in the world now come to realize the preciousness of human life, their lives and the lives of others. And I wanted to go into that just a little bit more because one of the things that I find is that we all face is this conflict between the inherent and intrinsic value of life versus what may sometimes be negative self-thoughts or the pushing away of beings whom we identify as other. So in the yoga practice, what we understand to be a philosophical kind of uniting principle is that every being, every being, every living being from every human being, every animal, every creature, every critter, every plant, every amoeba, everything, all life is valuable. It can be overwhelming sometimes to tune into the vastness of living beings in the world. We think about the multitude of human beings, those whom are near, who are close to us, our friends, our family, those whom are far, living in countries far away whom we may never meet. 
when we think about the animals, the birds that fly around in the air, the cherished pets that so many of us humans keep to open our hearts and fill our lives with joy, the working animals, the industrial animals, the cows, the pigs, and other industrial animals that are out there. We think about this as staggering, unbelievable to think about these countless, countless beings. Well, all life is valuable. And even though it can be overwhelming to tune into this vastness, this is what makes us connected. Whether you think about it or not, you and me and all living beings, we're connected. We're connected now through this podcast, but more than anything, we're connected through the energy and frequency of our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, and the kind of energy that we inhabit. And every single one of us matters. The way I see the world is that there's infinite joy and also infinite sorrow in the heart of the world. In every situation, there are highs and lows, and there's love and loss. There's joy moments of joy that seem to make time stop and fill us up. But there are also moments of heartbreaking devastation that seem like they want to break us. And this is all so deep and so powerful that it may seem utterly daunting, like drowning in a wave of endless seas, unable to swim. Each emotion comes through, cresting at incredible highs, and then going down to really powerful lows. And this up and down motion seems to be uncontrollable. We're touched by so much so that some of us seem to close off to the, the, the feelings of, of heartbreak that, that are told in the images of the suffering of the world. The sick people who lose their lives or are fighting for their lives in hospital rooms and in bedrooms all over the world. The sick, the unwanted the abandoned dogs on the streets, the abandoned children whose cries no one hears, the brokenhearted who sit at home feeling unloved, misunderstood, alone, billions of animals without a home raised for the sole purpose of dying, birds, cats, bears, other animals whose habitats are shrinking, utterly defenseless against human civilization, indigenous people whose homes and lands are lost, as we sit here now, some of the hardest hit communities in the United States, among them is the Navajo Nation, who not only face the difficulties of the coronavirus, but also have to face the hard realities of not having things that many of us take for granted, like running water. There are the downtrodden, the outcast, the rejected, the marginalized. We may feel that we, we find ourselves among this, these groups, the abused the voiceless, the powerless, the hurting, the sick, the injured, the forgotten. It can be overwhelming to open your heart to all of that, to let it all in, to feel that pain. But this is why we practice, so that our hearts can grow big enough to contain not only the positive highs, the light and love, but also the overwhelming beauty of sorrow. But of course, not only that, not only sorrow. Even in these times, there's the laughter of good friends, Although we may miss seeing them in person, we see them on screens. There's hope, hope, boundless hope, even in the most hopeless places, small acts of kindness, the idea of being happy for no reason at all, just because it's another day, a gift of life, the rhythm of a song that you feel in your body that for a few moments 
transports you to a moment of ecstasy, the magic of sunrise and all of the promise of a new day, the sparkle of the stars and all of the mystery of the night, the feeling of a few rays of sun as they may touch your skin, the warmth, even if it's just from a balcony or behind a window pane. All of these feelings, the ups, the downs, this is essentially what we contain when our hearts grow big enough to embrace the good and the bad. When we no longer run from pleasure, run towards pleasure and run from pain, when we're no longer defined by craving and aversion, we can find ourselves truly balanced, truly whole, and able to be fully conscious and present. One of the things that always seems to come up to the surface when we think about practice and the preciousness of human life is that so many of us, particularly in the West, we are so hard on ourselves, so punitive with ourselves. We have a hard time drawing the line between discipline and self-punishment. We get mad at ourselves, frustrated at ourselves. We seem to think of ourselves as worthless beings. We can openly contemplate the value of others, the other beings who maybe are suffering. We can easily fight for the rights of animals, even the earth. But when it comes to valuing ourselves, our root inside of our heart is this casual disregard for one's own worthiness. It's so prevalent in so many Western people's hearts, and this comes up in the yoga world. Well, in the ancient philosophies of the East, there is a path for healing. That is the reason I think so many, so many students all over the world are drawn to practice yoga, meditation, and to study this path of self-realization. There is a notion of intrinsic worthiness, of intrinsic worthiness that carries through all of the ancient philosophies of the East, from yogic philosophy through Vedantic philosophy through the philosophy of the Buddha. To start the spiritual path, it is understood to be a statement both of hopefulness and a recognition of your intrinsic worthiness. It is this kind of affirmation that you too have a, a mirror image of the divine, a, a holographic kind of expression of all that is good in the universe. There is faith that you too, you also, you and me, we both, all beings, contain the seeds of awakening and that every being has value. So to start the spiritual path is to say, yes, I have value too. Yes, I have that seed of awakening within me. Yes, I have faith that I can wake up too. I have hope that I might be able to find more peace and more happiness. It's a statement that says, I'm worthy. I'm worthy. My human life is precious and I'm not going to waste it. To think then that you would measure your worth by a pose or an asana that you can or cannot do is completely antithetical and opposite to the foundation of the philosophies that you know, yoga and meditation are based on. It's so far in a way of thinking that some of the esteemed teachers of the East uh, have had a really hard time fathoming it. There is a really popular story that's told about the Dalai Lama. When the Dalai Lama was asked a question about self-loathing, self-hatred by his Western students, it took, 
his translator a really long time to explain to him what the premise of the question even was. The Dalai Lama simply couldn't understand why the student didn't accept or realize their own worthiness, their own goodness. The story goes that at a retreat, a person asks about self-hatred. Dalai Lama goes back and forth because he can't understand this. And then it takes a long time really just to process this. And there are a couple of interesting and I think worthy takeaways for us all. If the Dalai Lama wasn't even cognizant of the notion of self-hatred, self-loathing, then one thing that is certainly clear is that this is a conditioned state. It's not intrinsic to human beings. We don't have to hate ourselves. Just knowing that it's not a necessary part of who we are opens up the possibility that you can be free of it, that it's just a habit pattern of the mind. It's something we've learned. It's something that's been conditioned and programmed into the brain, into our habits, maybe learned through our early childhood experiences, but it's not who we are. The other thing that's important is that hearing about other people asking questions and experiencing their own self-loathing and their own self-hatred really normalizes the experience because there's nothing like feeling like you hate yourself and then feeling ashamed that you hate yourself. Like you're the only person who does that. If you feel self-loathing and then you feel like you need to punish yourself for your self-loathing as though you're doing something wrong by self-loathing. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't hate myself. I should be better. Then you compound it. So hearing about how other people are struggling with self-hatred as well really helps normalize the experience and kind of take the taboo and the guilt out of it. You know, hearing hearing a story of how someone else is going through something that you're going through reaffirms that there's not something uniquely wrong with you. If, you know, these feelings of self-hatred and unworthiness are present in others as well, it, it, it really helps. It makes sense to you. Now, of course, not all Westerners, not all people experience self-hatred, but there are a lot of people who really do. I've definitely struggled with it myself. I've been known to, you know, I beat myself up about mistakes that I've made, rehash the past. I could have done better. I hate myself because I made a stupid decision and beat myself up about it and then end up making the same mistake again and hate myself even more and just continue the cycle. So what is self-hate really? And how does this contrast to the notion of really valuing the preciousness of human life? When you engage in self-hatred, it is a rejection of your own value, but it's a subconscious rejection of your own value. It's not like you're consciously saying, you know, I want to continue to hate myself. In, in many conscious acts and in many conscious thoughts, you're actually trying to love yourself. You may be say, looking in the mirror and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. But when the subconscious root is still there saying, you know, you're not worthy, you're not good enough, there's still this root of self-loathing and self-hatred. And you know, the, the, the parallel thing that, that happens here is that when you devalue your own life, there's a devaluation in the life of others as well. There could be no acknowledgement about the worthiness of others until you truly wake up to your own worthiness. So what is self-hate really? Well, to get comfortable with it, let's take a look at it from the, the psychological perspective. This is a term that's usually used to describe people who hate themselves uh, someone as 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 with someone with low self-esteem, self-guilt, self-loathing, shame, unbalanced self-deprecation that sometimes masquerades as humor, self-sabotaging, and a general view of oneself as worthless. 
Contemporary studies show that millennials in particular experience higher levels of self-loathing than any other generation. If you're unsure if you're experiencing self-hatred, there are a few common few common expressions, few common thoughts that you may, you know, notice yourself thinking. There are all or nothing statements that you might think about yourself. You'll see your life is like a list of ultimatums. And a lot of these will result in catastrophe. Oh, if I can't make it work this weekend, it's never going to work for me. If no one signs up to do this event with me, I'll be a complete failure. These kind of all or nothing scenarios. Only focusing on the negative is another one that can indicate that that seed of self-hatred is (laughs) popping up and sprouting a little bit. And the idea is that in situations where it doesn't matter how good your day was, all you can do is think about what went wrong. 25 things went well, one thing went wrong. You just obsess about that one thing went wrong. Usually maybe blame yourself as well. Another thing that can contribute to that negative state of self-loathing is believing a feeling is a fact. So that, and what that means is that instead of saying, I feel like a complete failure right now, then you would say, you know, I, I I am a failure. So when you when you're when you say I feel like I failed that, I feel like I didn't do a good job. So you're talking about a feeling. Whereas you say I am a failure, then you've now turned the negative feeling into an identity, which is actually again strengthening the ego and solidifying something which is super transitory with the feelings. Low self-esteem, we've talked about, and this is this feeling of unworthiness, feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be loved. I'm not good enough for the good stuff. Uh, An interesting way that you can think about this is if there are some really, really good things in your life that you feel comfortable sharing with others, but you don't dare take it for yourself. Whether it's some really beautiful clothes that you never wear because you're saving them for a special occasion that never comes, or some really amazing you know, chocolate that you share with your friends, but never dared to eat yourself. And so this is kind of another way you can express, well, I don't, you know, I don't feel I'm I'm good enough for that, but, but you go ahead, you take that. In the United States, we are surrounded by hate, people hating themselves, spewing hate online, hating each other, sort of using hate as a motivation, whether it's self-hate or projected self-hate outward. I, I genuinely believe that to the degree to which we removed hate within ourselves, then we will remove our hatred for others. But when we hate ourselves so deeply and so subconsciously and that knot is tied so so powerfully inside and we're unable to resolve that, we will consistently just look outward for someone else to hate and scapegoat and blame is the source of all of our misery. And, and when you hate someone for a moment, there's this false illusion of power that kind of inflates you. It inflates the ego and you have a small bit of relief from your own self-hatred, but it's just an illusion. You come crashing back down. Only when we can make peace with the seeds of hate within ourselves will our world be free of hate. We have to experience our own basic and intrinsic worthiness if we are going to value the preciousness of our own lives and the preciousness of the lives of others. It's easy for us to value the body and value our accomplishments, you know, how hard you worked, whether your abs have a six pack or not, whether you can do this yoga pose or not, what school you went to, what kind of car you drive, all these accomplishments. This is, this is, thing, these are things we've done. But what we're looking at when we talk about the preciousness of human life is understanding the intrinsic worthiness that every being is worthy of love. Every being has value, including ourselves. 
And it's this recognition that's so hard for so many of us to accept that we too are made in the image of the divine, that we are perfect. We are whole, connected to source, and that that, that you, you and me, us too, we fit into this grand cosmos, like pieces of a puzzle, perfectly fitting into place. And if you were I, if we were missing, there'd be a hole in the grand scheme, the plan of the universe. When you get into self-hate and the devaluation of self, rejection of worthiness, you dig into some of the deepest, darkest trenches of the subconscious mind. I know I've been there myself many, many times digging around and finding some skeletons in the closet, some old bones down there in the graveyard of my subconscious mind. This stuff is buried so deeply within the psyche. When it comes up, it appears as truth. It appears as permanent. It appears as the way things are, unquestionable. But it's actually just conditioning and patterning, not a fact. Contemporary neuroscience has shown that a vast majority of our thinking is subconscious and automated. This is the National Science Foundation in the year 2005 published an article summarizing research on human thoughts each day. They found that the average person has between 12,000 and 60,000 conscious thoughts per day. That's a lot of thoughts. I don't know how many thoughts you've been thinking throughout this podcast, but that's a lot of thoughts. Of those thoughts, 80% were negative. They skewed negative. And 95% were exactly the same repetitive thoughts as the day before. That's pretty incredible. They say that these patterns are set from the time a person is about 35 years old. So we can see that the tendency of the mind, human condition, is to focus on the negative and repeat the same, same old songs over and over again. This is often referred to as negativity bias, and maybe in another podcast, I'll talk a little bit more about negativity bias. Here are some other interesting studies. Scientists also found that 85% of what we worry about never happens. Just think about that for a moment. 85% of what we worry about never happens. Then 15% of the worries that do happen out of those 15%, what we worry about, oh, that did happen. Nearly 80% of people discovered that they could either handle their worst case scenario or that the the difficulty, the tragic circumstance, what they were worrying about, it taught them a lesson worth learning. Then the conclusion that is drawn from this study is that 97% of our worries are baseless and they result from an unfounded pessimistic perception. These baseless worries are a huge source of stress and tension for the mind and also for the physical body. One thing that is really good about your yoga practice, your meditation practice, is that it's given you the tools to dive into the subconscious mind and reprogram the mind. These repetitive patterns in Sanskrit are called samskaras. The, they have an inertia and power to them, and, and they can actually create our life experience. Well, the purpose of yoga is to burn up these repetitive behavioral patterns with the power of the fire of purification, revealing them in the light of pure awareness, where these patterns burn up like almonds roasting on a fire. So if you ever notice during your yoga practice that your seed of self-hatred is awakened, you find yourself beating yourself up, then the the teaching tells you to explore that, to actually investigate it. Oh, this is my self-loathing. Let me watch that and actually use whatever you experience in that difficult moment as the focus point, the anger for your meditation. So explore it in that moment. So what you think, it matters. 
not just to the goals you set in life, but to the world. The type of thoughts that make the biggest impact are unconscious subliminal beliefs that have been programmed into the deepest layers of the mind. These beliefs often take root as pre-verbal biases that color your view on life. And this can take the form of, you know, self-loathing, self-hatred, or it can take the form of many other pre-programmed thoughts and assumptions. The only way you'll ever change these deeply held assumptions is by bringing them out into the clear light so you can see them clearly and study them, look at them so that they're no longer subconscious and automated, that they're conscious and aware. For example, if one pattern of anger, negativity used to take you on a spiral that would last a year, if you could cut that in half and have it only be half a year, great, that's progress. If you were caught in a negative spiral of self-loathing for a month, and now through the practice, you're able to cut that down to two weeks, that's progress. Or even if it lasted the same amount of time, but you were just conscious about it, well, that's progress too. The reason why these unconscious thoughts are so powerful and important to look at, deconstruct and bring into consciousness is because they lay the foundation for what you could call the operational system of the mind. If left unattended, these thoughts will run on autopilot and gather inertia. And everywhere you look around you, you'll find proof for the validity of these thoughts that you think about yourself in the world. Soon, you'll take your feelings, your preconceived notions and biases as self-evident truths, when in fact, these are these repetitive thoughts, these samskaras, are often just some systemic beliefs passed down from generation to generation, bearing the scars and wounds of the past. We think we're free, particularly in the United States, the land of the free, home of the brave, people protesting this, people protesting that. But the reality is we're all in chains. The chains are in the mind. We think we determine our future, but really we're caught in a web of hurt, caught in the past. We think we know who we are, but we have no idea who we really are. We think we see the truth, but what, what we see through thick, broken glasses that only show us a small piece of the puzzle. There is, however, a way out of this muddled mess, and it's the foundation of every spiritual tradition aimed at liberation. You have to do the work. It begins with yourself to recognize your own intrinsic, inherent worthiness for you to recognize the preciousness of this human life, and it expands outward to include the whole world. Start deconstructing the thoughts you think about yourself, your body, your culture. Question the whole system of thoughts that manifest in society. There's no past. There's no easy way around. It's hard work to untie the fabric that's in the subconscious mind. Freedom, called kaivalya in Sanskrit, true ultimate spiritual liberation, is not something that happens with the snap of a finger. Compassion is the energy that keeps us alive, but we have to clear out these blockages. We have to clear out these impurities of the mind. If you're a seeker, you have to be desperate to find the way out of the maze of your own misery. Anything less, you might just turn around and revert back to those comfortable, familiar old patterns. Keep watching the same old movie. It's almost like the samskaras and these repetitive thoughts. There's, it's like a movie that's playing on repeat inside your head. And the movie that's playing, well, it's pretty much a rerun. The same old story, the same old plot lines, old and familiar. Same characters, looks, you think it's different, it's just the same. The familiarity is the temptation. And here's the thing. Most of us didn't like it the first time we watched the story, but we keep retelling it over and over again, assuming that somehow it's going to be different this time. That is one of the definitions of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting it to be different. 
So the yoga practice says, why not tell a new story? Here's a tool that can help you rewrite the architecture of your thoughts and feelings with a new program. You can have, you can install the architecture of self-esteem. And this is something so powerful that those of us who experience self-hatred and self-loathing, we don't have the architecture built up for positive self-thoughts. We don't know where to, we don't know where to store compliments. We don't know how to say thank you, you know, to people that say, you look beautiful today. That was a really well-written paper. You did really well there. We don't know where to put those because there's no architecture of self-esteem. Through You have to build that yourself. You have to swim against the stream of the known so that you can put a hook into the vast limitless freedom of the unknown. This is yoga. Unless you wake up to a new level of truth, tomorrow will look just like yesterday. We think it'll be different, but it'll be those same old stories. Hey, look, if you're in love with those old stories, keep watching. I know for me, I'm personally ready to change the channel. The preciousness of human life is so poignant. Our life is short. We think we're going to last forever. We think we're immortal. We think it's forever. But if there's one thing that this current situation really brings to light, it's that our life is precious and short. We have no idea when it will end. We're here one moment, gone the next. A real sense of time often eludes us. We feel we're young, invincible. We feel we're deathless. And there is something in each of us that is deathless. But our mortality here in this human body is something that can wake us up to a deeper truth. Instead of getting hooked on world of sensory pleasure and distraction and surfing the internet and reading one thing after another, we can stop and drive the mind into a deeper space and encourage the mind to drop down into a deeper space. The only thing stopping you right now from building the architecture of self-esteem, opening your heart to recognize the preciousness of your own life is patterning, the pure inertia of the past. But these patterns seem larger than life. We spend months, years, lifetimes running them over and over again. Things we have a, have a sort of visceral feeling aren't true, but we're not strong enough to break free of it. This is where yoga is a daily discipline gives us a slow, steady, methodical way to retrain the habit pattern of the mind. We do this, we work for our own liberation, not so that we can sit on a mountaintop and say, look, I'm liberated, but because the very fact of liberation is compassion itself. That compassion is the energy of waking up. That, it, that, that, that by removing the impurities of the mind, there's this vast open field of boundless love, for, for not only the world, but for oneself and one's place in the world, gratitude to be where you are in the here and in the now. When you commit yourself to daily practice, your yoga has the opportunity to live through you. It's through your dedication that you'll find real and lasting peace and you'll see the mirror of the compassion and self-love that you awaken within yourself reflected back at you from every interaction, every human interaction in your life. Great stores of compassion, strength, and love reside within you now more than you can possibly know. Yoga is a tool that can help you experience, practice, expand your heart, and tap into eternal and universal consciousness. Each human being holds this potential of a great and beautiful unfolding, a delicate dance, whose musicality graces the halls of earth with powerful presence that's you and me. We are here, vibrating, alive. Your life, my life, all of our lives are valuable, filled with aliveness, 
we are full with the desire to flower and the idea that the seeds within us are not just the seeds of self-hatred and negativity, but are the seeds of true awakening that we carry within us, the holographic imprint of divine perfection. And these seeds must be watered well to grow in a healthy way. When you practice, you water the seeds of the awakening of consciousness. When you're gentle with yourself, when you're kind to yourself, when you forgive yourself, you build the architecture of self-love. When you're kind to others, you forgive others, you mirror the possibility of kindness, forgiveness, and love. This is healing. And yoga is about healing. This magical, magnificent, and ephemeral life that we live here is for nothing other than to share love, nothing other than to share whatever glimmer of preciousness, whatever glimmer of light we can bring into the world. How that manifests is up to you. Whether you're called to make the remaining time of your precious human life here about your spiritual practice, whether you decide to take up a cause and do volunteer work, whether you are a first responder on the front lines now, whether you're called to fulfill any dream that's in your heart, recognize that that is vital and that you are here to contribute. It is not just thinking of goodness, but the idea is that the spiritual path helps you build that architecture of goodness within yourself. And it's only through your wholeness so that, that, that you'll be able to fully contribute to the world. Remember, whatever hatred is in your heart will be carried through in every action. So until you remove all of the seeds of hatred within your heart, and until they're completely gone, then that will tinge and color almost every interaction that you have, even if it's just subconsciously. Your work towards waking up the seed of compassion within your heart is an expression of the intrinsic value and preciousness of your human life. It is the most important thing you can do every single day to put in your work, to wake up, and to embrace the preciousness of your life. Tibetan Lama Chagdad Tulku Rinpoche, he teaches that, or he taught while he was here on earth, that a human birth amongst the countless beings is as rare as a twinkling star in the noonday sky. Look up tomorrow and see if you can find one. You'll see and recognize the preciousness of human life. I've looked up in the noonday sky numerous days, and I've never seen anything but the sun. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS, and that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, 
I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.